0: Joe, where were you born? I was born in LA. Wow. All right. Born in Rand. Original, Original LA.
1: Original LA. Cedars yeah, of me. Lebanon before it was Cedar Sinai Hospital. <laughs> what
0: what was it like growing up in, in LA? And when you say LA, LA proper or one of the suburbs?
1: I was in the San Fernando Valley. Made famous by various uh, movies in the 80s. So, like, I can actually, like, totally talk like a valley boy. Oh, wow. <laughs> Chris I, like, is I is actually you, people g- who, like, had, like, as every third, like, word in their, like, sentences. <laughs> That's, like, currently, like, <laughs> Yeah, like, totally. <laughs> they just
0: don't say <laughs> dude and totally <laughs> do that, they still say like. Oh, and uh, please tell us about the circums- circumstances of your upbringing.
1: Uh, I'll resist the Steve Martin joke because it's no longer politically correct, but, um... Well, now we have to hear it. No, no, no. No. Uh, (laughs) That would be bad. From the (laughs) jerk? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The people who need to get the joke got the joke. Um, So, no, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Um, It was, at that point in time, kind of a Mayberry RFD kind of a deal. Um, rode our bikes to school and, you know, the definition of, uh, of, of cell phones was the one mom calling the other mom to yell at you for something and um, and it was interesting. I mean, I look at the difference between my, my kids who were like panicked at the idea without a cell phone and somehow we all survived with no cell phones and it was kind of easy, so different. But went to public school, grew up, my dad was a home builder so I started working on job sites earlier than I can remember. Um, <clears throat> And the uh, uh, knows the story. Swore I would never go into home building because like, only total losers go into their parents' business. So I would never do that. <laughs> um, and there we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, if you
0: were stereotyped in high school, what would you have been?
1: Oh, I was one. So our high school sort of broke like all into groups. There were the music nerds, the photography nerds, the jocks, and the stoners. And the groups didn't particularly mix a lot. My high school was unique that we had the photography nerds, because I went to a high school. I actually transferred from um, a different school to go there. We had a federally funded photography program. When I was at Reseda High, we actually had a better photography setup than UCLA or USC. Wow.
0: In a public high school? In a
1: public high school. It was basically a jobs training program. You, you, You graduated from there, you could go be a photographer. You didn't need to do anything else.
0: And that was your passion? That was where I was headed. And in fact, when you considered going to college,
1: I believe that was one of your considerations, right? I actually did my my summer semester at lovely Rochester Institute of Technology on a scholarship from Eastman Kodak. Um, For those of you who have not been in New York in the summertime, it's an experience to be forgotten quickly. (laughs) Um, And realized at some point during there that uh, it was a great hobby and I loved doing it, but it was no way to make a buck. And Mm -hmm. so came back and went to UCLA and USC. And what did you study? Business. Start business at no. well, I was at UCLA. I did general stuff, thinking I would get a business degree. Having been stupid enough to not do my homework, and realized that UCLA doesn't offer undergrad business degrees. So I transferred as a junior to USC and got an undergrad business degree, and uh, anticipated going to law school. Took the LSAT, got in, did all that, and was convinced by my lawyer that I should just keep doing what I was doing. I had started fixing up apartment buildings when I was a senior in college with my roommate. And he said just keep doing what you're doing. You don't need to go to law school. So I, I owe him one for that cuz that would have been a wh- I don't I wouldn't have made it as a lawyer.
0: So let's roll that back a second. You said you were in your senior year of college and you were doing something with real estate. Yeah. P- please tell so us. So my, a bit about my
1: that. roommate's father it's not Very common, right? I don't know. <laughs> my my roommate's dad was a doctor who had invested successfully in a lot of apartment projects, which is rare. Doctors traditionally are the worst investors in the world. And he was coming out of an exchange and went to his son and said, you know, if you guys want to go and buy a small building, I'll put up a third of the money. You guys go raise the other two thirds. And so we did. And so we bought a 56-unit apartment building in Reseda with uh, $620,000 raised from about eight people. Um, I had to make a co-invest, which I borrowed from my dad at totally usurious terms. And, uh, and that worked and our investors liked what we were doing so we did a second one and then we did a third one and we had done three or four by the time I graduated. So your dad was in home
0: building, mm-hmm. not, in, not in real estate investing.
1: Yeah, my dad ran a traditional production home building company. Uh,
0: but you just felt natural around real estate, it made sense to you, so that's why.
1: Yeah, I wasn't smart enough to do other things so I stuck with real estate. <laughs> Other stuff seemed too complicated. So yeah, and and then the segue that no one's ever figured out exactly how it happened, somewhere along the way the apartment building business needed needed an office, because running it out of our apartment wasn't working, and so we moved it into my dad's office, and then at one point I was getting the, why don't you help out on this project, why don't you help out on that project, and one day I woke up and I was CFO of the family home building business. I still had the apartment business on the side, but we had stopped buying stuff. We were just managing them
0: how for our investors.
1: At this point? 26 or seven or five, or somewhere around there. Wow, wow. Um, and I was like the classic overdriven. I mean, I would, it was not uncommon for me just to take clothes, work straight through the night, go to the gym next door, work out, shower and come back. I probably did that one night a week regularly just to get caught up. So I was kind of crazy.
0: And and did did you feel, I always ask this question, did you feel (coughs) inner motivation for that or do you feel like your parents put that in you? Was it socialized into you or were you
1: just born that way? You know, it's funny. I've always been a bit type A, so just sitting around and doing nothing was never in the cards. And then um, the apartment buildings and making some money and being able to buy stuff was kind of fun. And then once I got into the family business, that was where the dynamic changed a little bit because I was determined, the entire time I was in the family business, I was always the first guy there in the morning and the last one to leave at night, mm. period. And because it was just so important to me not to be perceived as dad's boy. Mm. And so I, I, I think it's safe to say I overcorrected. And so I got through that. And then 10 years later, I was running the family business. My dad retired. Um, got bored, unretired, came back, and I fired myself. Because two people running a company does not work. No. And so that was that. Joe, let's talk about
0: something that you and I have talked about in the past, but how how did you manage, how did you and your parents manage to build that drive in you, given that you didn't come from humble beginnings where you couldn't afford things? and there's this perception, uh, arguably justified, that the children of well-to-do folks are lazier or less driven or less motivated.
1: That doesn't seem to have happened with you. You know, it, it, it's funny. One of, one of my parenting highlights was when uh, one of my sons was interviewed in the Park Record. You know, only in Park City can you be in the newspaper for a high school wrestling match. In, in L.A. that, you know, if you didn't kill at least six people, you're not in the newspaper. Um, and, uh, and he was, you know, straight A student, blah, 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 and when they asked him where he got the motivation from, he said, you know, I've always watched how hard my dad worked. Mm. And I thought about it, because I was somewhat in the same boat. I mean, I may have come from an uh, upper-middle-class upbringing, but my dad always worked really hard. Um, probably should have quit a lot earlier than he did, but he always worked really hard. Frankly, I just kind of thought that was what you did. I, I didn't know there was another model to look at it. It wasn't like it was any deep, dark thought. It was just, yeah, that's what guys do. You go out and you make your way and you get married and you have kids and you work your ass off. The, the rest of the story came later. Let's, let's talk about that part of the story. Please
0: <coughs> uh, tell us uh, how family came along in your life.
1: Mm. I will admit I enjoyed being a single guy in LA. Um, I had a lot of fun, a lot of friends, and was at a art gallery opening, to this day the worst show I've ever been at, and, you know, there's a theory that says it's not that you get married when you meet the right girl, it's that when you're ready to get married the right girl comes along, hmm. and I had done the single thing and was kind of done with it when I met Lisa at an art gallery, and we were married a year and a half later, Wow! so that part was pretty easy. And-
0: was there a transition in your, in your lifestyle, in your demeanor, in your
1: approach to life? Um, you know, she moved in with me and I would say that was the change because the difference between living with her and being married to her wasn't that significant. Um, and neither of those were particularly significant compared to coming home with twins. That's a life changer. <laughs> For Those of you who have had multiple kids and diapers at the same time, you understand. So, you know, my, my running joke is that the difference between having kids like one every three years and having twins is that is you end up going from a zone to a man on man. So there's always one kid crying and one per parent.
0: Mike, I, I actually got that. Barely, but I got that. <laughs> <laughs> I could tell Mike's like, the Sam's faking it, I don't think.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, um,
1: uh, so that was a big life change and it was great. And you know, it, it, they're now both seniors in college. So. You know, life's just a series of phases, and you go from one to the next, and you try to make the best of it. You,
0: you started out saying you didn't want to get into home building and, and real estate. You had two chapters. One in, in should we call it REIT? Uh, did, were you running a REIT essentially, or
1: now I was running? So I've, I've had sort of four discrete jobs, okay. uh, not including the apartments because that was just something I don't think I'd call you don't that a job. that the chapter. It was kind of short, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. it was, it was a, a subchapter. So home building was chapter one? Yeah, so chapter one was working my way up through the family business, and then fired myself from that, um, ended up hanging my hat at an bank, really just as a place to hang out and figure out what I wanted to do next. Saw a void in the market for land financing, mm-hmm. and put together a deal with this company that used to be around back then called Lehman Brothers. Um, they're not around anymore and uh, spent about eight years doing land banking. They changed, um, as a result of Enron, they changed the rules as to how one did off-balance sheet financing, and it became, in my opinion, a a much riskier business. So I exited that and ended up starting a a fund with a political guy. Uh, We got a small investment from CalPERS that turned in over years to a big investment from CalPERS, and we had that uh, California Employee Pension Fund, we had CalPERS, LA City, LA County, and LA Fire and Police pension funds as our investors. And we were, you know, about a billion of equity and a billion of debt at one point. Did that for eight or nine years, realized that wasn't where I wanted to spend my life, sold out of that, and was sort of happily doing nothing when I get a call from the creditors committee for Woodside saying, can we hire you? This is third quarter of 08, can we hire you on a six month assignment to help us figure out what to do with Woodside? And since I left a month ago, obviously I'm slow because it was a long six months. So. <laughs> so I like
0: the home building being chapter one, and home building again being chapter four. It sounds like.
1: Yeah, and interesting because chapter two and three were on the money side, but they were yeah. both on the money side of home building. I
0: see. I was going to ask you how you made that transition. So in, in both like of the funds, and mm-hmm. it was interesting.
1: So when I showed up at Woodside, you know, I had to go out and figure out what to do. They had 100, and, I don't know, 180 projects in 10 states. And in my fund management days, I had actually done business in all those states. So we had done deals. I think my old fund at one point had deals in 20 states. So we were spread all the heck over the place. So Joel, many of us remember 08, 09, 10,
0: 11. You'd been in real estate even longer, and you'd seen the economy longer, and I frequently have discussions on the economy with you. Was that as drastic and singular an event as it felt to you when you were experiencing it? Did you feel it was?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was between gigs, so I was semi-insulated. But, you know, I had lots of friends in the industry. I mean, I grew up in home building, so most of my friends, frankly, were in the industry. And, you know, you'd pick up the newspaper and XYZ Public Builder is taking a $400 million write-down and the next one's taking a $500 million write-down. And I was at a dinner party I won't name names, but sitting be between one of the top analysts in home building and the CEO of one of the top public companies in home building, and they were leaning over me, arguing because the analyst was saying, "You know, why are you only taking a 200 million write down? It should be 800 million, $900 million. And he's leaning back, saying, "No, it should." And I'm like, "Guys, can I just leave?" And the homebuilder's like, "Don't you dare!" Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so you sort of got a ringside seat for it. It was, I mean, you could see it coming. Right? I mean, if you really could. You couldn't see how bad it was going to be. But in 2007, I was sitting on the National Mortgage Roundtable representing the National Association of Home Builders, which is sort of a, a DC think tank that advises the, the Senate. And I, I was driving to one of the meetings. And and interestingly enough, the committee was chaired by Angelo Mazzillo and Lou Ranieri. I don't know if those names ring a bell, but they were two of the more infamous characters of the mortgage world. Um, and I called my mother-in-law and I said, how bad is this mortgage underwriting? And she was actually doing quality control for an SNL. and mm-hmm. And she goes, I'll give you a vignette. She goes, I just pulled the file randomly. It was a housekeeper at a Marriott hotel and she had just bought a $400,000 house. And her qualifying income, remember this is in the days of, of no-doc loans, her qualifying income was to the penny what you needed to qualify for that loan, mm-hmm. right? Now, statistically, what are the odds of that happening? So she calls the lady and she goes, what are you doing? She goes, I'm a housekeeper, what are you making? I'm like eight bucks an hour, $400,000 house. And you look and you say, how, how was that going to end in anything other than her losing all the money she put into the house, right? And what they had was a teaser rate, so her going in rate was like, I don't percent or something, but when the rate adjusted to market, the mortgage payment was like four times her pre-tax income, so. And, and what the mortgage brokers, who really were some of the biggest sleazeballs in the world, would say is don't worry about that because you'll refi it or sell it before then. Mm-hmm. And so the, the psychology was based on churn. So when you realize that that was not an uncommon story, all of a sudden you go, wow, this is going to end badly. And it did. So the good news is now, you know, people are worried about the next downturn, which is, is always just a when, not an if. Um, there's nothing that bad going on in our industry right now. The, the, the liar loans are gone. Actually, if you look at the credit quality on the, the typical MBS pool right now, it's actually staggeringly high. I think the last FHA pool, the average FICO was like seven hundred and forty or something, mm-hmm. which is you know really high uh, for for a big pool of loans. First time home buyer loans, um, I mean, it was seven hundred and twenty, but it was crazy because the actual FHA l- documented limit is five hundred and twenty. So to be that far above the minimum on average tells you the underwriting's pretty steep. The, you know, this'll end. It always does. As As Yogi Berra once said, things that can't go on forever usually end. <laughs> now, you, you did say last time it was somewhat self-evident to you? Oh, it was crystal clear, clear to me to and you. a handful of others. That was when I got out of the business that it was going to end and it was going to add badly, end badly. The, the connecting of the dots that nobody appreciated was, was the, the trading in the derivatives of the CMBSs, right? So the CMBS pools where the mortgages were was X dollars, but there was like a multiple of that in people on derivatives, which is effectively just just going to Vegas, making a bet on the performance of this asset. And so those cratered, and those were financed with bank loans, and you know everybody saw the, the pulling of the thread and the sweater coming undone. and the, guy underneath it not looking so good. And you you don't see (coughs) an
0: equivalent, obvious thread today?
1: No, Um, the mortgage stuff is spread out all over. Actually, a quarter of all mortgage securities right now are owned by the Fed, who's not gonna panic and run for the hills. Uh, The rest of it's spread out amongst institutions and private investors, so I don't see that happening. Um, I'm worried home prices have gone up Way faster than incomes, um, and when you add interest rates going up on that, affordability is going to get uh, affordability will be the issue in home building in the immediate future. You could argue it is already, but it's just going to get a lot worse. Um, and you know, like we we're discussing over coffee, the Fed, if an economy is supply and demand, the Fed can muck with demand, but they can't touch supply. And so it's the supply. You know, what can Chairman Powell do to clear the logjam of container cars at the Port of LA? If you just sort of go to an obvious example, right? I mean, he hasn't, they have no power there. So, um, but they'll they'll raise rates, they'll cool things off. Um, I don't understand how a bunch of really smart people in D.C. could come to the conclusion that you can pump six trillion dollars, just print six trillion dollars, pump it into the U.S. economy, and not have inflation. Like, I, I don't get how you do the math and come up with that conclusion. So it, the fact that we were having inflation was completely inevitable.
0: You know, to be fair, although you're absolutely right, the vast majority was injected recently, I think, have we not been predicting inflation for 10 years now with low interest rates and, and quantitative easing and so on, and yet it only seemed to really accelerate in the last year and a half or so? Why, why is that?
1: You know, inflation always has a lot to do with, with M2 and money movement and the cost of money, mm-hmm. and you've had um, generational savings rates that are very high, you've got places in the world where the savings rates are crazy high, but you just had a lot of people saving a lot of money as compared to spending it and pushing the cost of stuff up, mm-hmm. and everybody saving money then puts a very high price on the vehicle one uses to save money, i.e. the bond market. Which is why you've seen bond yields so low, and so I think the overall low rates in everything have have helped keep a limit on it. But I think inflation was always brewing, and uh, and you just needed you needed something to ignite it, and it happened to be the pandemic. and And to be fair, you know, it's not like anyone in D.C. can look back and say, well, you know, what did the economy do during the last six pandemics? Because the last one was a hundred years ago when none of our Financial markets existed, so it's it's you know it's uncharted waters. Do you think, and not
0: to get uh, uh, too technical, just on economics, but do you think this constant oscillation is necessary? Is a necessary evil? The the uh, upswing, downswing, upswing, and sometimes what feels like a broader oscillation.
1: You know, I don't know. Um, you could make a good argument that a big part of the oscillation is actually caused by the government trying to minimize the oscillation. Um, if, if you look back, if you take a longer term view of sort of you know, fiscal and monetary policy and you look at what the economy does in the periods after that, um, the doctrine of unintended consequences has certainly reared its head more often than not. But the idea that an economy would just sort of float along at a normalized level and grow slowly forever—it's it, a great theoretical construct. I don't know that it's ever happened. Sorry, came unclipped. Um, I used to have a great chart on home values that, that Schiller did from Case Schiller, mm. and and he took it back to the California Gold Rush in the late eighteen hundreds, and and it's like this. There's no there's no time period over if you. You know, you're cramming 130 years under an 8.5 by 11. There's no time period that looks like we've ever figured out how to keep it even. Well, since we've covered the economy, let's go
0: to geopolitics for a yeah, second. Yeah, I was going to say, by the way, you know, my, my opinions we'll on reali- the
1: economy are worth exactly what you're paying me for, them. We'll, we'll do religion next. But, uh,
0: <laughs> um, what are, what are We're you- not
1: going to talk political correctness. I'm so disappointed. <laughs>
0: This has felt to many like a, a very unique time in the U.S. where, um, <clears throat> where we are split into two, uh, much more so than in the past. First, do you believe that that's a fair assessment? Is that true? And second, what do you think is causing it, and how does it end? Hmm.
1: Well, first of all, I'd say I think it's the biggest problem facing the country. Because if we're all kind of sort of working together, you can solve problems. If we're all at each other's backs, you, you can't solve what's order for lunch. And uh, w- when I've been in D.C. and I've talked with people who have been there for a really long time, they all say they've never seen it this divisive. Yeah. And it's been growing for probably more than 10 years. Um, as much as I despise Trump, you can't really lay this one on him. It, was, it predated him. Um, and... Uh, so yeah, I think it's a big problem, and I think it's, it's fueled by a number of things for which I don't see an obvious solution. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly fueled by, by the mainstream media, left and right. Um, I read a book, I read the galleys for a book, I don't think it's out yet, called Confessions of a Fox News Hitman, mm-hmm. and, and what was most striking about it to me were two things. One, the level of thought and science that goes into making sure that they only put things on air that cater to the preconceptions of their audience who buy the goods that their advertisers are selling. I mean, it's not like you take the news and report it. They actually start with people's perspectives. They know what they want to hear, down to like when you see the three people and they have the one Democrat, they know there are certain things they can't let him say. So they'll actually cut them off. Mm -hmm. The disturbing part was they. He talks about how well it worked as a business strategy and how left-wing media, while with a different angle, kind of copied the formula. And so now you've got people getting, not really news, but simply turning on the TV to get their preconceived notions reinforced. And so they're not learning and they're not talking to each other, they're talking at each other and across from each other. And I have this debate with my friends. I'm a, a lifelong liberal Democrat. doesn't mean I agree with everything or even most of what the Democratic Party does. Um, and I have a good friend who is in New York and he's like, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't think I know any Republicans. And, you know, living in Utah, you know, half my friends are Republicans, maybe more. And, and it's really interesting because it's really hard to have a intelligent discussion about any of these hot topics without people just oh, you're a do not climate denier, or oh, you're a Trumpy, or oh, you're a Sanders guy. And what people do is they use labels instead of thought. Because once you put a label on somebody, then you don't, need to, you don't need to address the legitimate part of their argument. I have this argument with, I, I have a kid at Berkeley. You can't get, I mean, he had the great line. He said, Dad, I'm the most liberal kid from a liberal Jewish house in Liberal Park City. At Berkeley, I'm a conservative. <laughs> Um, and, and I'm sure he's right, because I've listened to some of his friends there, and and they are pretty seriously disconnected from reality. But I also have friends on the right who are still like, no, January 6th wasn't an insurrection, it was a peaceful protest, and Trump actually won, and I'm going, like, do you have something even in the, the line of sight of a fact to back any of this stuff up? And they go, oh, that's just your liberal democratic perspective, and I'm like, okay, there were. 59 lawsuits where Trump appointed judges on half a bunch of them said, You have no facts here. And their response is, That's just the media spinning it. And so, you know, what's the old joke? You're entitled to your own opinion, you're not entitled to your own facts. People have conflated fact and opinion now. There's no, you know, the difference between the TV op ed guy and the TV news reporter, that distinction's gone. And so, um, It's funny, I was talking to a bunch of friends last night about it. What the country really needs is a a complete revamping of our journalism system. Hmm. And we need to come up with a way of actually getting journalism to be, to to quote a inaccurate line, fair and balanced. (laughs) Before I
0: turn the conversation over to the team, so please prepare your questions for Joel. Joel, you've had um, four incredible chapters professionally You've, had, you've exited three businesses, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in your very early thirties. Um, I think my
1: t-shirt's that old, but yeah, thanks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, you figured out a lot of things personally. Um, yeah, not so much. No. <laughs> what, what are one or two things you wish you'd known when you were
1: a 25-year-old? Oh, I certainly wish I hadn't taken life so seriously. Uh, I think as you get older you realize it's the old saying it's mind over matter. As long as you don't mind it doesn't matter. And so you know I look back at at the 25 year old me thinking all of this has got to get done on time and I'll just make Wednesday night my work straight through the night night and not worry about sleeping or taking care of myself. Um, So I would go back and say at 7 o'clock go home, have a drink, go out with your friends, relax. Um. what else? Anything to do with uh,
0: uh, maybe one around you've, you've done such a great job with two young men who are now graduating from college for those of us with kids.
1: Yeah the great thing about having twins my, my wife and I you know the deal is you have one kid you sort of learn what you're doing and in theory you're better on the next ones. We always referred to our parenting style as stupid squared because uh, we got a chance to be a we, we literally had two kids, and we were a clueless first-time parent with both of them. Um, you know, it's funny. We laugh about it because, you know, we always debated: Are we pushing our kids too hard? or Are we not pushing them enough? Are we, you know, does it matter if we get them into a better school, or should we leave them in the public school and let them fend for themselves? And we went back and forth and back and forth. And then you get to, you get to the college application process, which is because we had two kids with different, so we were doing, I mean, there were days where literally I was at Denver with one kid, and Lisa was at Penn with the other one, and two days later, I mean, it was it was craziness. And I think much like my younger self, I think we took the whole thing a little too seriously. It was funny, I was talking to the guidance counselor at Park City High, and you know, like all parents, we were completely stressed out where our kids are going to get in, you know. Cameron was waitlisted at a couple Ivy Leagues, Jeremy was waiting, you know, all this stuff going on. And she looks at me and she goes, you know, I know this will sound odd, when the dust all settles, most of the kids end up where they belong. Somehow the system filters it out and they end up in the right places. And for all the BS we went through, you know, Berkeley was not really in Cameron's top three and it was the last school we toured. And we get home and he goes, yeah, that school's me. Now stipulated, we toured it on 420, which was my bad planning. (laughs) Um, I literally, I literally was high walking through the quad because it, it looked like the fog had rolled in off the bay but it was not fog. Um, for those of you who want a real trip, tour Berkeley on 420, that was, that was a great move. Um, but he's had a great time there and, and his brother is at University of Arizona which is completely different in all ways, I mean one's a red state, one's a blue state. Um, and so. Yeah, I think as you get older—God, I hate saying that—you kind of chill out a little bit. I mean, I look back at how stressed out we were about which schools they got into. It didn't actually change anything. (laughs) It didn't help. Uh, They landed where they landed. They'll get the education they're going to get. They'll both go off and make their own way. And, you know, 10, 12 years after they graduate and they're making their own way, people quit asking you where you went to school. So then it's, what have you done lately? So, um, yeah, I would say if I could do anything, I'd go back. I would, I would just chill out a little bit more. I like that. I like that. Uh, so, anyway. Let's uh,
0: go to the team.
1: And on parenting, I will absolutely lay claim to knowing nothing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Alan has a parenting question. Yeah, well, actually, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I have four older children as well, and you mentioned what you've learned see them making the same mistakes currently right now or not mistakes but maybe you know, going through that learning process
1: I, I believe the old saying is no one can tell you what it feels like to get kicked in the nuts <laughs> um, pardon me ladies <laughs> but um, uh, yeah I mean Cameron is more driven than I ever was and uh, and I mean the running joke was our, our kids bedrooms were like across like this and we would go up to one kid and say, you know, please quit studying by midnight and go to sleep. And we go to the other kid and say, please crack a book and quit screwing around. And at the end, they both graduated high school, they both graduate college, they both get jobs and I just don't think it's going to matter that much. I mean, when was the last time you looked at a, a job applicant's GPA, right? Who cares? I mean, it's, In, in I think the biggest... Bad thing that's happened lately is my kids spent half their college career in their bedrooms at home doing college virtually. So, you know, they were they were juniors when COVID hit, so way less less culturally impactful for them. I mean, I just I just mourn for these kids who had their freshman year virtually, because in my opinion, half of why you go to college is just to grow up. And cultural skills and relationship skills and how to work with people and team building and all that stuff all of which got shot in the head during covid so you know that would be awful they were fortunately for us they were juniors so they were both in fraternities they had friends they it wasn't that bad for them in fact to be selfish it was kind of cool for me because they were home so much more i mean i never would have gotten to spend the amount of time i spent with my kids the last two years if it weren't for covid so that was that was my little silver lining but yeah i mean i will say I frequently felt like talking to my kids was a waste of time because it was going in one ear and out the other. And years later, what you realize is they don't acknowledge it at the time, but it, it, they have somewhere way back there. They do absorb it. And so I have 22-year-old twin boys, and, and they'll do stuff and say stuff, and my wife will look at me and go, God, they were listening, <laughs> with, with a look of total and complete shock on her face, right? Thank you,
0: there's hope. <laughs> <laughs> Less seriously, you don't seem like the type to just retire and stare at a
1: beach. What's What's next? Excellent question. Stay tuned. Okay. I my um, deal with my wife is that I will not jump on anything for the next year. Um, I I have heard she is placing bets against that with our friends. Um, I How think long will you last? I think the odds on me lasting a year. Uh, I think the Vegas line on that right now is not good. Um, <laughs> It's but your decision or her saying you need okay, to go yeah. get something. From her. No, it's 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 very funny. Right now she's busier than I am. Uh, she's the chairman of the board of the Kimball Art Museum, which has a ton of stuff going on. She has her art career. Um, so it's like, you know, I want to take her out to lunch. She's like, No, I'm busy and I'm sort of sitting home going, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in the meantime, as Bassam knows, we've got a ton of travel planned. We're sort of throwing COVID caution to the wind. I'm I'm leaving to go skiing in Europe next week and uh, where they do actually have better snow than us finally. I was stressing out because I'm like, I I don't mind going up to Park City on my season pass and having a marginal couple of hours of skiing. I would have been really pissed if I'd spent the money to fly to Europe for skiing just as bad as it was here. And they only started getting snow like a week ago. So I breathed a sigh of relief. Better food though, so you would have Way better food. Love Park City, food in Europe is tad bit better. I think the pasta I get in Italy will be better than Godotie's. <laughs> yeah. Uh, two questions. One home building,
0: one kind of personal work. Um, there seems to be a trend and maybe it isn't but to someone outside of companies like Zillow buying single family homes and that feels different uh, both in the US and Canada. Do you think that's a phase of these companies trying that, or do you think that will disrupt things second differently? You talked about when um, your dad came back to work. You said uh, I fired myself. There couldn't be two people. Was that uh, before he came back, or were there things that happened that you said this can't work? So two different.
1: Well, ways. I'll do the second one first because it's easier. My my dad unretired and seemed to think he could walk around and and not quote be president of the company but still not impact things and 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 he didn't he didn't realize what he was doing but when you've run a company and it's your company it's sort of hard to just sit back and have your kid run it and so it was clear to me that he still had a long time left of running the company and it was his company and I wasn't gonna hang around so and by the way from the day I told him I was firing myself to the day I walked out the door it was two years because it's not so easy to exiting a family business is not so easy um, homes for rent is, is a different scenario, so if you add up Inspiration Homes and what Lennar is doing and all of these institutional buyers of homes, it's, it's still a single-digit percentage of all of the homes rented out in the U.S. So this is still dominantly, I'll get the exact numbers wrong, but there were like thirteen and a half million homes rented out in the U.S. and a couple hundred thousand are owned by institutions. So. I think that it's, I, I owned, not I owned, I managed 126 single family homes when I had my management company early, early on in my career and it was the worst job I ever had. I hated it. But we didn't have an internet, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have consolidated accounting systems, there was no way to scale it. What the guys doing it now have figured out is is how to scale it and run it efficiently and so i think you'll slowly see more and more of the 13 million mom and pop ownerships shift into institutional ownership remember when you're thinking about where to live there's do i want to own or do i want to rent and that's not necessarily the same decision as do i want to be in a house or do i want to be in an apartment right you can own a thousand square foot apartment in new york and rent a three thousand foot house in park city they're just decisions you make based on a whole bunch of different things. Um, when I moved to Park City, I wasn't sure it was gonna work. I rented for the first two years, right? And I rented in, in both, inst- well, I rented a bunch of different places, but in every instance, they were owned by moms and pops, um, a friend of a friend, somebody who had moved out and hadn't wanted to sell it for, because they had a really low tax basis, so they just kept it and rented it out. Um, so I think it will continue to grow it is, however, as an institutional investment category, it's not seen a downturn, right? So it's a, it's a, as an institutional investment class, it hasn't survived a downturn yet. So I think that will, that will cull the hurt a little bit. But I think, it's, I think it's around to stay. And in some ways, it's a little bit unfortunate because what you're seeing is them crowding out a lot of the first-time buyers. So you have people who don't wanna buy a first home but wanna rent. And then you have people who really want to buy a first-time home but can't, because the guy who wants to rent it to them is gonna beat them to the buy. So it's, you know, that part's new enough that you know time will tell, but it's gonna be around. It's been around forever. I mean, literally, there were, there were 13 million of them before you had ever read an article about it. Other Questions?
0: Sean. Uh, so you moved from LA to Park City, is that right? Can you tell me a little bit about why and- motivated you to move to Park City?
1: The why is easy. The why is because I was on a 6 a.m. Delta out of LAX every Monday for two years and there comes a point in time where getting up at 4 to go to the airport gets old and so the company I'd been hired like I said for six months which is why I didn't move originally was based in Salt Lake and we looked around and decided that Park City fit us better than Salt Lake and uh, so that was easy. Um, the, The the discussion with my then twelve-year-old boys about the move—that was pretty funny. Uh, Lisa made filet mignon, which she doesn't eat meat, so that's a big treat for the boys. Um, and we sat down to dinner, and I explained we were moving. And for years after that, if she made steak, the guys were like, "Oh my God, what's happening?" <laughs> so you know, steak became literally like like steak at home became a trigger for a few years. Um, <laughs> One of the boys looked at me and goes, Dad, that's big. That's really cool. Because I said, look, we're going to move for a year or two and see how we like it. Think of it as a ski trip with school. Uh, the other one marched upstairs, slammed the door, and informed us that he would never talk to us again and was pretty unpleasant for a few weeks. Um, but in terms of uh, moving here, you know, um, while Park City has certainly taken a, a little bit of a hit on quality of life in the last two years with all the influx, um, People who complain about traffic here really need to go spend a weekend in L.A. and realize how easy it is here. You know, I was, it was funny, if you wanted to be, I am i have a thing about being punctual, if you wanted to consistently be on time in L.A., you needed to pad your commute times by a half hour, an hour, an hour and a half. So I would always have a briefcase full of work and a book because I was much more likely to get somewhere 45 minutes early. Uh, and if I hit traffic, I'd just make it. So, you know, here, yeah, there's traffic, but it, it follows skier commutes, right? If you're not coming into town at the beginning of the ski day or leaving town at the end of the work day, it's really not bad. Uh, I will say this town could use, and the Dependry's gonna open three new restaurants. Uh, the first one is open, it was quite good. So, hopefully we'll start, hopefully the new people in town will create enough 12-month demand that we can get a few more good restaurants. That kind of leads
0: into it. Somewhat
1: about LA? Uh, you know, I lived there 50 years, so I have a lot of friends there, so I miss them the most. Um, I miss probably the restaurants. I mean, I'm kind of a food nut, and the choices in this town are a tad limited. I'm being kind.
0: <laughs>
1: um, but to offset being limited, they're also extremely expensive. <laughs> Oh, I'm not sure I should say that, because I have a lot of friends who own restaurants. Um, what's, what's, what's a good restaurant? Would Actually, I've only been there twice, but the, the new steakhouse right around the corner from here, I think Sterling. Oh, yeah. n- not what one would call budget conscious, but really good. And kind of a fun atmosphere. The guy who started as an ex-House uh, of Blues guy. Um, so he's got, you know, guitars and stuff all over the place and fun rock and roll pictures. Um... What else? When the boys are home, we tend to go to whoever has the largest portions. <laughs> you know, my boys look at a menu and they go down the steak list and they just look down the ounces and the highest number is the winning bid.
0: I believe the expression about Park City dining is it's okay, but at least it's expensive. That's true. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, and it's and it's and it's monolithic. I mean, you know, it's not hard to find a steak or a piece of salmon in this town but good luck if you want Indian food, or Thai food, or or good Mexican food. I mean, anything other than a steak and a piece of salmon is hard to come by. And nothing against Bill White, but the Italian food in this town, with the exception of place next door here, it's just not Italian. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Salt Lake's not that far. Do you like anything in Salt Lake?
1: Oh yeah, Salt Lake, it's, it's funny, Salt Lake has a pretty good restaurant scene. I think Salt Lake gets, gets a bum rap, but Salt Lake has a lot of good restaurants, I'm a big fan of Veneto. Thank you, I uh, know
0: the owner there. So I'm just making sure, because I live in Salt Lake, I want to make sure we're we're up to par.
1: Yeah, no, I got my, I got my update email from Marco this morning. Great, great, <laughs> alright. Well, to be clear, they're getting back into the master plan community space. They've done it before and it was very successful. And and the company they're partnering with, DMB, um, is a company that really understands how to create a sense of place in a master plan. Uh, longer funnier story about how they got started, but they've done some really wonderful master plans. And Disney hit it out of the park when they did Celebration originally. For years it was the best-selling master plan in the country. And, you, you know, it's when Americans go shopping for a home the house itself is not on the top of the list and it's it's a concept that's hard to explain to my the company that bought the company I used to run the Japanese guys you know in Japan the city's very dense and everything's a city so you're really selling the house right in the US you're selling the neighborhood the amenities the school district and then the house and and there aren't a lot of companies with a lot Better resume in creating a sense of place than Disney. Although there was a Sundance documentary this year on Disneyland. Uh, It was actually produced by, I forget her name, but she's like Walt's granddaughter, and it was pretty ugly. (laughs) I think they said that like a third of Disneyland's employees had at one point in the prior two years lived in their car. Um, So Disney's got a little bit of housekeeping in their own house to clean up. But for DMB to bring them in as a brand, I mean, look, Margaritaville was successful. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, if you can sell Margaritaville, you really ought to be able to sell Disney. <laughs> I've got to assume there are more people who want to live in something with Disney's aura than Jimmy Buffett's.
0: Is this the same DMB? as in Glenwild DMB?
1: Absolutely, yeah, they were the developer of, of Glenwild. I forgot they did do one out here.
0: I didn't realize they did anything that scale, some, the scale of something that Disney would do.
1: Oh, Glen Wilde is a teeny, teeny deal in their portfolio. They're doing deals in Phoenix that are 8, 10, 12,000 homes at a whack. And, and the partners of DMB, um, I know the M well, but the D and the B, one of them was, his family was Masterlock, and the other one, his family was Campbell Soups. So they started the company rather well capitalized.
0: And with that, Jill, thank you so much for making for us this morning and we love checking in with you from time to time so it'll be interesting uh, hopefully around the year mark uh, to learn about your new adventure which will have been eight months old by then. So. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's that's that my bet.
1: I'm trying. I'm really trying. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks.